we essentially caught vasovagal syncope on telemetry, which I had never seen before. <laughs> and the way it manifested with his patient was essentially a six second pause on telemetry with P waves. So that's when I called the second rapid response. <laughs> and I need y'all to come right on back because we have yeah. not fixed this problem yet. <laughs> Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. Well, today I'm excited to welcome Annie Fulton from Up My Nursing Game podcast. I was actually featured on her show a couple months back all about stroke emergencies, so definitely check that one out if you haven't yet. But Annie, I'm excited to have you on my podcast. Can we start by you just telling my listeners about yourself? How long have you been a nurse? What kind of nurse role are you currently in? And obviously tell me or tell us about your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Annie Fulton. I've been a nurse for about eight years now, all at the bedside, ranging from med surge, cross-trained to ED. And I'm currently in, I guess what you would equate to a med surge flow pool at a large academic hospital where I can go to one of 30 floors each day. Sometimes I'll go to two different floors or even three different floors on a given shift, which is just kind of the nature of being in float pool. So I started a podcast, an educational nursing podcast about two years ago. You could think of it sort of as like a pandemic project of mine. But I, I started this podcast in which I interview experts in the healthcare team about common nursing questions and pitfalls. Um, I've also had it approved by the AANC so that listeners can claim one unit of continuing education credit for each episode. So I had Sarah on the show recently, and we did a great episode all about strokes, kind of the whole stroke pipeline from presentation through like common pitfalls and that like post-stroke care. Anyway, it, it was really great. It was a great episode. I encourage anyone listening to, to go ahead and check that episode out too. Yes, definitely. All of them are just chock full of stuff that you didn't necessarily go over in nursing school. Like the, the stuff you really got to know at the bedside, all the little, like the weird diagnoses and the new meds that have just come out. So definitely a great podcast. I highly recommend your podcast. Yeah. So, I, I like to say it's, it's not your nursing professor's podcast. <laughs> yes. Perfect. So today what we're going to do is Annie's going to tell us about a rapid response that she had to call. And then we're going to just dive into the pathophysiology and pharmacology of that particular case. Before we dive into it, I just wanted to review um, from my last podcast, like the intro to syncope, the three types of syncope. So when you hear her describe this patient, you'll kind of know, or you can kind of clue into which one she's describing. So the first one is reflex syncope. That's your patients that have the vasovagal syncope or carotid sinus syndrome or situational syncope. Next is orthostatic syncope. That's whenever it's drug-induced or they're very volume-depleted or something's going on neurogenic-wise. And the third one would be cardiovascular syncope. That's what we see a lot with patients who have arrhythmias and possibly a mechanical obstruction like PE, tamponade, aortic stenosis, something like that. So Annie, tell us about your patient. Tell us about what led up to it and then the actual reason why you're like, that's it, I'm calling a rapid response. 
Yeah. So I had a patient whom I actually called two rapid responses on over two different days. So I'll start kind of from the beginning here. Okay. I had a patient who is post-op TERP, so transurethral resection of the prostate, which is a very common procedure. It's usually kind of in and out of the hospital and in, I don't know, one to two days, like very routine procedure. So I had him, he just came out of PACU he come to me and when I was checking his vital signs, I noticed like, hmm, his heart rate looks kind of high, but he looks okay. Maybe he's in pain. You know, I'm just going to kind of keep it in the back burner of my mind. But when I checked his vitals again, a couple hours later, his heart rate was still high and it was getting higher. So I said, okay, I'm going to keep the pulse ox on this guy and just kind of keep an eye on that. So then his heart rate kept getting higher and higher. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to slap telemetry on him and see what's going on. Good forward thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and the issue with this patient was that the atten his attending physician, so his primary physician at the hospital was a urologist, and he was still in OR doing procedures, and he was unreachable. He said it was he was like in a dead zone in the hospital. Like, I, I don't know what was going on, but he was, he was unreachable. So I was kind of stuck having concern about this patient who I had, I'd thrown on telemetry. He was second degree type one heart block. Okay. And this was a new diagnosis for him. He had no known cardiac history before. So in a way, maybe it was like an incidental finding, or maybe the stress of anesthesia had caused him to go into this heart block. So I ended up calling a rapid response because I was stuck with this patient with a new diagnosis of heart block and unable to get a hold of a provider. So I called a rapid response because I needed to expedite things. Mm -hmm. I yeah. needed a teleorder. I needed... Uh, 12 lead, you know, I, I needed someone to start managing this patient's like cardiac status. So that was my first rapid response. And I ended up going home uh, and coming back the next day. And I got this patient back again. He was still in and out of first, first degree heart block and then second degree heart block. And, but he was doing okay. He had a, a hospitalist take over his case. So his cardiac issues were being addressed. He was going to have a cardiac consult. During my shift, he's on telemetry. A doctor comes and talks to him about what's going on with his heart. And I think this is the first time this patient had had a talk with a physician that was like this serious about, you know, something as scary as your heart. And he said, you know, I'm not feeling really good right now. Um, and I, I looked at the telemetry monitor with, with the physician who's there. And we essentially caught vasovagal syncope on telemetry, which I had never seen before. <laughs> and the way it manifested with his patient was essentially a six second pause on telemetry with P waves. So that's when I called the second rapid response. And <laughs> like, I need y'all to come right on back because we have yeah. not fixed this problem yet. <laughs> and it was the same rapid response nurse. And I was like, great, we get to hit the ground running here. We, we know what's going on with this patient. 
And the, the physician at bedside said, um, you know, besides we need to start a bolus wide open, we need to take serial blood pressures on this guy. He said, atropine, we need atropine here at bedside. And the rapid response nurse said, I don't think that's a good idea because, well, Sarah, maybe we, you can talk about this. This is a complex case because it's not only syncope that we're talking about, but also the second degree heart block. Right. Right. Yeah. So what did the rapid response nurse say as to why atropine isn't your go-to for this patient? Right. So this rapid response nurse was wonderful. He was so good about like the education aspect of his job. He just sat down, talked to me and said, look, atropine works on the SA node. And this guy, he has P waves. His SA node is working. Atropine is not the drug of choice here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for a patient who's just having sinus bradycardia, Atropine is great. It'll make the atria squeeze more than the ventricles will hear the message and they'll squeeze in response. Great. But for someone who has a block, atropine, I mean, you can give it. It might not do too much though. It's the, the issue. So you're almost wasting your time doing intervention. It's not actually going to fix the problem. So if atropine is going to increase the atria doing their thing, but there's a block going to the ventricles, we haven't fixed the issue there, right? So right. we need to figure out why did this guy go into a heart block? in the first place. It sounds like he had a reflex reaction to that stressful situation of the doctor talking to him about his heart. And now he's kind of like bearing down like that, that whole, that whole, seems like that's what's happening with him. So again, would atropine harm? Ah, it's hard to say it would actually harm the patient. It just probably wouldn't do anything. So you're just kind of like wasting an intervention. Whenever he had this six second pause, did he actually syncopize or did he lose consciousness? He did okay. not. He was laying totally flat in bed. We, you know, he had that sense of it coming on. And so we mm -hmm. were able to kind of start reacting to it, but he, I don't think he actually lost consciousness. Okay, good. I mean, it's because you got, you got it early on because you already had a one telly, you're already thinking in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And before we go too much further, I just want to pause and recognize that nursing intuition that you had day one, we are like, this is going to be a little more complicated than just a terp. I think I need some telly on this patient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you knew something like, obviously you could never predicted the guy would have second degree heart block. Like no one's expecting that from your basic terp procedure, right? but just following right. the intuition ended up paying off really well. And then also how you said, you know, I tried to get a hold of the doctor. I think a lot of nurses would say, oh, I tried to call the doctor. I couldn't get a hold of him. I did my part. Well, 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 there's always something else you can do, right? And even if the doctor you call doesn't give you what you're wanting because say it's a urologist and not a cardiologist, right. then you keep being annoying until you get what you want. And I love that hospitals have rapid response teams to be able to come alongside you and provide that resource of another provider that can help advocate and get the patient, you know, what they need. So yeah, just kudos, for one, kudos, Annie, for trusting intuition <laughs> and get the patient on telly and not being afraid to call a rapid again the next day. I know people are like, I'm sorry, I, I just called you yesterday. I'm like, no, don't be sorry. Definitely call back. This is a big change. And what's going on? I knew the group of physicians very well. They all kind of come from one like medical foundation mm -hmm. and I know those physicians and I was able to kind of navigate my way into finding someone who would take responsibility <laughs> for him. <laughs> and I think like 
I could do that. And then it was my know-how or my, you know, background experience with this group of physicians coupled with the rapid response nurse. I think doctors kind of start taking more like interest (laughs) or Mm -hmm. take things more seriously once a rapid response nurse is involved. I think between Mm -hmm. those two, like we were able to really get the ball rolling on this guy. Good, good. So what ended up happening? I'm I'm assuming an official cardiology consult, cardiology had to come see this patient at that point. What was the the outcome as far as the intervention for this patient? Yeah. So after he had his syncopal episode, you know, his, he had all like the classic syncope findings, like he was hypotensive for a while. We bolused him. He became normotensive, kind of back to baseline. Um, we, the physician ordered a EP consult. So electrophysiology came on board and you know, that doesn't always happen right away. You know, they were Mm -hmm. also in their procedures that day. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, EP came around and said, essentially, like, we're not concerned about this. This Mm -hmm. is, this is, you know, vasovagal reaction. And he's stable. And we'll see this guy in outpatient workup. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and and that's actually okay, right? If we don't have any continued arrhythmias, if his blood pressure is maintaining after a bolus, if his wakefulness is maintaining, then it probably can be worked up outpatient. But it absolutely has to be worked up outpatient because, you know, something's going on there just to make sure he doesn't have like aortic stenosis or heart failure or something else that's kind of potentiating this vasovagal response. But it is common for after surgery when you're already kind of volume depleted and now you have this. Uh, stimulation of your vagus nerve because you're scared or frightened or overwhelmed or whatever, that combo just often leads leads to the pause that you saw on the monitor and and the syncope. So I'm glad he was in your care whenever it happened. This patient was having a very difficult and scary conversation with the physician that that, that caused vagus nerve stimulation that, Mm -hmm. that then caused him to become hypotensive and to lose, almost lose consciousness. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like so maladaptive of Mm -hmm. a response. And this is coming from someone who's had many vasovagal reactions in her life. And it's so frustrating that like, just when in the moment when you feel like you need to be on, you need to be attentive (laughs) that (laughs) you start to faint. Yeah. Oh, that's opening a whole can of worms there. Yeah. So usually fight or flight causes tachycardia and breathing faster. And it's actually not a vagus nerve stimulation. So vagus is the parasympathetic nervous system, whereas Mm -hmm. fight or flight is the sympathetic nervous system. So you're right. It's a maladaptive response. That's not usually how it should happen. But some people do respond this way. Things they can do to help prevent that from happening is like making sure they're fully hydrated because if you're dry, your vagus nerve is going to be all the more sensitive (laughs) to stimulation. But yeah, breathing techniques help. And then just kind of recognizing this, this could happen. Let me just slow, let me slow everything down. So I don't, I don't (laughs) freak out. And then pass out. Sucks. Right. So my question for you, so this is the first time I ever saw a vasovagal syncope caught on telly, so mm-hmm. to speak. What is the normal like telemetry finding looking like when, when patients syncopize? I don't yeah, know. Have some, you seen it before? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Some patients just Brady really slow, like they'll Brady down into the twenties or thirties. And then that's just not enough cardiac output to get to their brain. So then they pass out. 
And some patients like you saw had those, the big six second pause. So it, mm. it could go either way, either way, they get so bradycardic, there's not enough perfusion to the brain, which causes the, the syncope. And then if the, so then the bradycardia causes decreased cardiac output, which leads to hypotension, which is why you were getting low blood pressure for him. So by bumping up your fluid volume, you improve the hypotension and kind of helped perfuse the brain a little bit better that way too. As far as the treatment for patients that are bradycardic, it totally depends on how symptomatic they are and what type of rhythm they are in, right? Mm -hmm. So we treat sinus bradycardia different than we treat, say, like a third or second or third degree heart block. So for some patients just walk around bradycardic. They're just always in the 40s. I want to say Lance Armstrong, he just lives in the 30s. Like that's just his resting heart rate. And he's obviously very stable and healthy and he does not need atropine and he does not need to be paced, right? He's, he's just fine. But if a patient is nearing unstable, say they're lethargic or about to pass out, or sometimes they'll get pale or diaphoretic or kind of dusky, or then that patient needs a little more than just, oh, let's just watch and see. That patient needs some intervention. If you have a sinus bradycardia, we can give atropine and that will jack up the P waves and give you more beats. It usually works for sinus bradycardia. But if you have a block, like I said, atropine, it's just not as effective. We have to try other things. So we can try epinephrine or dopamine, or we can do transcutaneous pacing. And that's where we put the pads on the outside of the chest. And you have to choose two things. You have to choose your rate, like how fast you want to pace. So say 80 pulses per minute or 90 pulses per minute. You just choose like a dial probably on your defibrillator. And then the second thing you choose is how many milliamps you want to use to shock that chest. So it's not as many as you would use for defibrillation. That would just be terrible to get that every second. Usually you'll start at like 5, 10, 15. You just keep turning up the milliamps until you get what's called capture. And we know a patient has capture two ways. One, we can see on the monitor that every pacer spike produces a QRS complex. So it'd be pacer spike, QRS, pacer spike, QRS, like sweet, we have capture on the monitor, mm -hmm. but you're not done yet <laughs> because sometimes just like with PEA or pulses, electrical activity, like in a cardiac arrest, sometimes the monitor looks beautiful. But you go to check a pulse and you're like, that is not what I'm seeing on the monitor. So I've had times where I'm like, yay, we got capture. Look, it says 80 on the monitor. But then I go feel a radio pulse and I'm like, mm, nope, that feels more like a 20 something. That does not feel like an 80. So we would say at that point, we have electrical capture, but not mechanical capture. Mechanical meaning uh. the heart is actually squeezing in response to the electrical impulse and actually creating a pulse that you can palpate radially. That makes sense. Yeah, it so, does, and I think it's it's an important point to make because I think we we become so fixated on the numbers, right? Yeah, everyone like, looks at the monitor, right? Everyone's looking <laughs> at the monitor, and they're not necessarily looking at the patient or you know feeling for a pulse. Right. One thing I often am like beating into the heads of, of new nurses is treat the patient, not the not yes. the machine. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even have when I worked in ER in the ER. I had a flight crew bring in a patient who was bradycardic and they're like, yeah, we're, we're pacing. We're at 120 milliamps. We got captured 120 milliamps and you know, they're doing good, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at the patient like, they don't look good. They look terrible. They're pale and diaphoretic and I can't really wake them up. So I go to feel a radio pulse and it was 22. So he was definitely not mm -hmm. capturing at 80, but again, monitor, beautiful. You're like, sweet, look at that. <laughs> when you looked at the patient, he did not look like he had a heart rate of 80. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So in that case, we had to increase the milliamps 
most machines, oh, I can't speak most, our machine at our hospital maxes out at 140 milliamps. Every machine, I guess, is a little bit different. So we maxed out to 140. We still did not get mechanical capture. So at that point, we had to place a transvenous pacer, which is where you put in like a giant central line in the neck, and then you feed pacer wires through the central line all the way into the right ventricle. So you actually pace directly at the heart muscle. We're bypassing the chest wall and the ribs and the muscles. You do it right at the heart muscle itself. And you almost always get captured that way unless you have dead heart, like from ischemia. Then, you know, ischemic cells just don't conduct electricity very well. But so we were able to get captured within that way. I have a couple of questions about that. So one is who performs that procedure? Transvenous pacing. Yeah. That would be a cardiologist or an ER doctor or an ICU doctor, someone who's experienced and we call it, we call them floating, floating the wires and the patient. Floating the wires. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that just any old doctor can do. That's something that you would have to have some critical care training and experience in. Okay. From what I've observed, again, I don't do the procedure. It looks pretty darn easy. It's just as easy as like placing a central line and feeding the wires in sterilely. And then you have a little, a tinier pacer box outside that you would choose the settings for how, how many milliamps and how fast you want to pace the heart. So you said you're talking about like small voltages, relatively speaking, as opposed to like defibrillation. I So I've never seen this before. Is Is it small enough that you don't have to sedate the patient or Ooh. yeah so that, um, it sounds uncomfortable right if it like, was me i would most definitely want sedation <laughs> <laughs> most definitely right all right we if we are transcutaneous pacing of course you want to sedate the patient but sometimes the reason we're transcutaneous pacing is because they're so sick and their blood pressure is so low and that's the reason why we're jumping to the big guns of transcutaneous pacing. And if you have a blood pressure of 70 over 40, there is no sedation you can give that they're going to tolerate. So sometimes you have to just pace them and say, I'm so sorry. And then once we get a blood pressure back, now we can give sedation. But in the initial part, sometimes you just can't. Like I was caring for a fellow nurse one time, actually, who I had to pace mm. and her blood pressure was 70 or 40. And she was like in and out of consciousness. And I just told her, cause she was a friend of mine. I'm so sorry. I have to do this to you. And, and she just looked at me. She goes, do what you got to do and save my life. And right. so we paced her. And after a couple of minutes, her blood pressure came up and I was like, let's get this sedation on board. I am torturing my friend right now, but it, it did save her life. So wow. I would never hold off on life-saving interventions for the sake of sedation because Nobody right. wants that either. <laughs> right. Save my life, right? I'll ha- I'll handle it. Yeah. That's so, so yeah. interesting. We would, we would we would like to sedate them if at all possible. But sometimes but so once you get into the transvenous pacing, you probably don't need many volts at they all, right? Feel it at you don't all. feel it. Mm-mm. Oh wow. No, I've even so as the ER educator, I was teaching people how to do the procedures because they have to assist the doctor with it. So I actually put my finger on the end of the transvenous pacer to like feel what it feels like you can barely feel it I'm like how does the heart respond to this yeah it's it's so minor so obviously your goal is always let's get a transvenous pacer in just for the comfort of the patient and because it's less likely to lose capture there's less factors that would hinder it like if the patient's diaphoretic or hairy or like all those things make it hard for the pads to get good connectivity but if you're inside the heart you're pretty much going to get capture so we would we would like to do transvenous pacing but transcutaneous facing is fast. As fast as you get the pads on and turn the, the dials up, you can get capture. Whereas transvenous, you have to like, you know, 
sterile, not sterilize, clean the neck and place the central line and pass the, like, it's a whole process. So it takes longer. Right. Right. And I imagine you don't, you might not have like the supplies right there. Whereas you have pacing pads, like everywhere in the hospital. Exactly. 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 Yeah. I think in our hospital, the transvenous pacing wires are just in the ER, the ICU and maybe the cath lab. And that's really all you're going to find them. You're not going to find them like on the med search floor or, you know, where else you might have to float the wires to, but. What are some reasons why transcutaneous pacing wouldn't work? Oh, I love this question. Okay. So I would say start on the outside. What external factors could go wrong? Is the patient really hairy? Do I need to wax that chest? Are they diaphoretic? Do I need to dry them off really good? Do they just have a large body habitus and there's just lots of tissue in between the heart and the pads? All those things can make it more difficult to get capture. And then once you get internally, so now we're looking at like the pathophysiology of the patient. So what are their electrolytes? You know, the whole sodium potassium pump, like if we don't have the right amount of electrolytes, it's hard for the cells to function properly. What is their pH is another big one. Mm. Acidotic cells, they just don't do their job very good. So that's correct the pH. Um, if there's like maybe like a tamponade or something where it's harder for the message to get through. And then the big one is ischemic cells. So if a person's having a heart mm. attack and there's a big chunk of meat of the heart that's dead, it's kind of have a hard time responding to those electrical impulses. So that's the, that's the big ones that I have seen. So yeah. when we're thinking, why aren't we getting captured? Why are we getting captured? Think through all those things. Okay. How is the chest on the outside? What do I see that I can fix? How are their electrolytes? Should we give a little amphibicarbon, you know, bump up their pH a little bit? Like, what can I do to help promote capture for this patient? Because we're getting to the point where we're maxing out our MAs and we don't have any more left to go and we're not getting capture. The patient's crashing. So we're going to be doing CPR pretty soon if we don't get this thing to capture. Wow. Wow. So I'd almost think like if a patient, you know, is very sick, 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 Mm -hmm. like you might, as soon as you put on a transcutaneous pacing pad, get ready for the transvenous pacing. Yeah. I mean, in my career, I've probably only like placed the transvenous pacer like 10 times. Usually transcutaneous does the trick. Like it'll buy you time until they can get to the cath lab where they would prefer to do it in a more controlled environment and under fluoroscopy, right? Mm -hmm. But transcutaneous pacing, in my experience, most often works. I have a handful of stories that could tell you where it didn't, right? That patient that was flown in on helicopter. I've had a couple of patients that they just had so much going on, other comorbidities that were keeping it from capturing. But most of the time, transcutaneous does the trick. Oftentimes the patients don't care that they're being paced for the first couple minutes until their blood pressure improves because their cardiac output goes up with a higher heart rate. And now their brain's awake and they're like, oh my gosh, what's happening to my chest? So then that's when you get the sedation out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. So do you have any other questions about handling bradycardia from when it's stable to where it transitions into unstable? No, I think, I think it's important to remember, you know, atropine, is the drug of choice for sinus rhythms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then knowing that you can always grab your pads. And then if those don't work, then you do the transvenous pacing. Exactly. And as far as atropine's appropriateness, sometimes atropine can help with the second degree heart block because there's still some beats Mm -hmm. that are going through, right? But Mm -hmm. third degree heart block, those atrium ventricles are not communicating at all. You know, there's like some disconnect with the secondary heart blocks, type one and type two, but with third degree, you're, you're wasting your time with the atropine for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what did you say in, in those cases when you have severe heart block, you said epi might be the drug of choice? We can try epi. If if the heart block is so bad that they're symptomatic, we're going to pace the patient. Got it. Is the honest truth. Got it. Yeah. <clears throat> but yes, epi is, a, is another great option. So any other questions about your patient in particular and like the treatment that they chose? No, I think, I think in the end, he, he happened to be just kind of more of a classic vasovagal syncope guy, but he just kind of happened to have this underlying mm -hmm. heart block going on. And luckily it was still stable and ended up discharging him home. And he did not get like the full cardiac workup while he was there. They may have done an echo, um, but I, I can't remember, but yeah, he, he'll be worked up outpatient. Yeah, and we tried, we tried to, study and... right, right. He was like a little bit of a poker face about all uh -huh. of this. And so it, it was kind of like walking a tightrope with him. Like, I want you to realize how important this is without making you have another, <laughs> without making you pass that again. <laughs> right. Without making you faint again. Like, I, I'm not really sure where, are you just holding it all inside or are you just kind of writing this off? I, I don't know. <laughs> you always have to like put the monitor in front of you and start talking. And when he starts to slow down, you just like, and let's just pause right there. I'll tell you some more details in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> titrating, titrating your discussion based on his heart rhythm. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. What a challenge. So let's just size like the pearls of today's or the mm -hmm. case that you share with me. So mm -hmm. the first thing I would say is, recognize that your intuition is so valuable, whatever tapped in your intuition on the first day when you knew something was up, you followed that and what a great outcome. You were actually catch the, the rhythm on the monitor. So very good job there. Rather than just trying to manage it with a urologist, you're like, nope, I want a cardiologist and I want the rapid response team and some more people to be on this case. So very good. Just recognizing the value in nursing intuition. And then next is with bradycardia, our treatment totally depends on how stable they are. If they are unstable, we're jumping to the big guns. If they are stable, then we have more time to do diagnostics and watch and wait and see what's going on. But we're not going to like stand, stand back and wait and watch someone bradycardic who's unresponsive to us, right? That patient needs intervention very quickly. And then our treatment options range from atropine to epinephrine to transcutaneous pacing. And if that big gun doesn't work, we're doing transvenous pacing. And at that point, if transvenous pacing doesn't work, there's not many other options, to be honest with you. That heart is really struggling at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe going so to the cath lab at that point too. That, I mean, that, that I, so I don't have much experience with this, but if, if someone's being paced transvenously, will they need to go to cath lab? Yeah. If, if they require a transvenous pacer, ultimately they're probably going to end up with a permanent pacer. Got it. But the transvenous pacer is a good, like, in between. Like, no one's going home on their transvenous pacer. They have to be transitioned <laughs> to a permanent pacer. Good, good point. <laughs> yeah. Here's your knobs. You just turn this one if you feel a little lightheaded. No. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all the big pearls I can take away. Do you have anything that you want to share with my honest as far as, like, uh, things that you learned from this case or pearls that you want them to remember from this experience? Yeah, I would say... When in doubt, contact your rapid response team. I think I, I, if you don't have the resources you need, a rapid response nurse will bring them there faster. That was also the, 
this rapid response was the first time that I realized how much education is a part of your job as a rapid Mm -hmm. response nurse. And the way the rapid response nurse just really sat down with me and it just Mm -hmm. explained it all out in a very like conversational way. Um, and kind of went through scenarios. Like if this happens, then you should do this. And if this happens, then you should do that. And, you know, asking, do you have any questions at the end? And anyway, he he had such a great manner with me. And I actually found out later, I followed up with him. And he said that he used this specific rapid response call as um, during a presentation recently, as part of a climbing the clinical ladder, he he used Mm -hmm. this as an example of his work where he had to use like clinical reasoning as well as like the the communication education Mm -hmm. part. And I was like, you know what? That's perfect. I'm glad we got mileage (laughs) out of this guy. And now there's a podcast episode (laughs) to further commemorate that rapid response. Yes. Awesome. Well, Annie, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I always enjoy talking with you. We'll probably have to do it. Next time you call a rapid response, call me and tell me about it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'll give you the blow by blow and and then I'll like get to hear your perspective too. It's always interesting to hear. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.